we can work on some of those. Let me explain to you what this Sunday school lesson is not. I know you all have a lot of questions about Revelation. This is not a where we're going to go through the whole book and go through a glossary of terms, that kind of thing. Um, I'm gonna, we're going to let the, the preaching unfold as it does, but if there are some questions you might have, I'm fine with um, covering some of those, um, but I, I want to make sure that we're sort of moving in order, um, and there are better references in some ways. There are wonderful references that I've been going to, and I think I did send out a bibliography of sources that I'm using, all of those are very good sources. Um, so I don't want this to just become a, hey, what's the X? And then I define what the X is, and then that's just all it is. Um, but I do want to answer what, you know, if you have a question, I'll say, all right, I'll answer that. I may say, we'll wait and get there when we get there. Let me pray for us. Lord, be with us this morning. Help us to understand your word. Well, we long to be good students, and so we ask for wisdom and insight, that we would see how things piece together, uh, that we would be humble under what your word does teach, uh, and help us, Lord, to be patient with ourselves that our minds do change, and we see things in the text that we didn't see there before, or we come to different convictions over time. Help us to be ultimately humble under your righteous hand. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so we're through chapter 1. We're getting to the section that we covered last summer um, on the letters to the seven churches. Yes, I will be going over that, but I'll be doing it more in a sermonic form than like a summer family night teaching form. So hopefully that will be, obviously it's the word of God. It's always important to, especially when we open it and and, and hear it read and preached. But um, I'm looking forward to getting into those letters and even um, touching on things that we didn't touch on this summer. So, seeing what you've seen, having gone through a huge portion of Revelation, the first chapter, um, you got any questions, or um, do you need some clarification on some things? And I'll, yes. You mentioned the rapture connection to the paganist Latin chain. Is that their only proof text for that idea? Or do they? No. That's certainly a scripture they misinterpret to prove the rapture. Um, What they're doing, uh, so you have mainly with Ryrie and Schofield, these are dispensationalists. And so a dispensationalist in terms of theological conviction. So even covenant reform folks, confessional folks say there are different dispensations in the scripture. And those dispensations are marked out by these big covenantal moments. So you have... The Genesis 3 covenant, you have the Abrahamic covenant, or you have the Noahic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, you have the Mosaic covenant, you have the Davidic covenant, and then the new covenant in Christ. It speaks of that in Jeremiah 31 and then also in the New Testament. They would say each of those dispensations is wholly unique, and they represent God's changing the way he would interact with people. The biggest significant difference is the Old Testament Israel is a different group of people than the New Testament church in this way. It's a different covenant altogether. The New Testament church, we would argue, is an extension of, is the full expression of the one covenant of grace that Christ, that the Father made with the Son 
and then the elect under the sun. So what Ryer and Schofield are doing is they are taking dispensationalism and they're trying to get the New Testament church out of the way so that he can go work with the Jews again. Now I would say God is going to work with the Jews again, but he will do so through the New Covenant church, the Gentiles. Um, And he will do that by making the Jews jealous by the church establishing a system that's worthy of being jealous for. Right, so in my neighborhood right now, people are putting up Christmas lights. Um, I used to be very much against Christmas lights, and I've realized, don't be such a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) I was in the cage stage of many things. My wife has had to deal with a wild animal for 13 years of marriage. And I said, you know what, forget it, they're beautiful. So let's just put them up, because they're beautiful. I don't feel like it enhances my spiritual life church calendar or diminishes or whatever, adds to it or takes away from it. So I actually got one of those little laser projectors, you know, that you can shine on the house. I got a cheaper Amazon version, Um, so it's not real bright. And the reason I did that is because I found out my neighbor did that, and so I needed to get one too. Because I can't have him be the only, I can't let the Southern Baptist outdo me. You know, I got to prove to my Southern Baptist brothers, I have a heart. So I put up a laser projector. Um, The Jews will be made jealous when they see that the Messianic kingdom is, in fact, a a substantial kingdom. Not just a kingdom of suffering, but a kingdom of victory. Yeah, the one thing that you can find a lot of uh, arguing and uh, bickering about this sort of idea is uh, called replacement theology. Uh, The the people who are of that persuasion uh, really resent sort of the overarching covenantal view that we have. And sometimes we, like Joe was saying, we kind of look at ourselves as, you know, a continuation of what happened in the original covenant. And when you look up replacement theology, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of people arguing about this and what's wrong with it, including John They hear the reformed argument sounding like that. That's right. That's right. And so they just look at the first of the argument and find all the speculation arguing between the two. All right. Was that helpful? Yeah. They're basically reading into text the doctrine that they have established by, well, bad doctrine, unbiblical, non-covenantal theology. And so they're reading into particular texts something that is not there. Now, here's the thing. I'm also reading into that text something that's based upon a theological conviction, but I hold to covenantal continuation. And not only that, but even in the text itself, it's making a series of illustrations. And the illustration is the wicked are like the chaff that the wind blows away. You don't want to be raptured. There is no rapture. But you don't want to be raptured. In that way, that's judgment. That's being, whoop, you know, it's... It's, what do they call that? What's the Marvel thing? You know, where everybody turned into dust. <laughs> yeah. Well, but it's not like that at all. Don't hear me saying that. <laughs> would you say anywhere in this historical document that the church 
ever saved from or delivered from persecution. No, and there are some who look to the rapture as a way of getting out of the tribulation. Yeah. So you can look at those things. Um, that's called dispensational premillennialism. Is the reformed version of that called Classical premillennialism. Is the Republication that, as far as I know of, has to do with the republication of the covenant of works at Sinai, which Meredith Klein and others hold to. I don't hold to that perspective at all. I would consider the covenant with Moses at Sinai a covenant of grace. That's a whole other rabbit trail, though. I'll talk about just about anything, but I do want to try and stay on some some semblance of on theme. All right. Any other questions or? Uh, Whatever. Comments? There's been that point that you were making there at the end. And you were you know, I'm reading your notes uh Haiti Toy the writing tool. Um I do think personally that there's been a, a dereliction of duty with regard to the church in the last hundred and fifty or so years because of the theology and because we don't embrace the fight, the game. Idea that hey, we are winning, and you—I don't remember exactly what you said, but you said something to about the, the word. The word is going to win. It is the way that we win. It's not just it's the way Christ won. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you could cover that a little more. I don't know if you know what I'm asking. Do I know what Spencer Greg is asking? <laughs> I mean, I think I do. I mean, there's obviously a simple answer to the question of how does the word win? And the word wins in the the way that, well, the proof of it is Christ is raised. Christ is victorious. We speak of Christ as the eternal logos, the word of God made manifest to men. Um, Christ is the means by which the Father created all things through the presence of the Holy Spirit. In the same fashion in which the triune God made all things, the triune God is remaking all things. So what Christ is doing through the church is an act of cosmic renewal and dominion. And he's doing it through the church. Such that I do believe that at the last day, the only enemy that will be left to destroy is death. Now, I'm not saying all unbelief will be gone, but I am saying that Christ through the church will destroy a far greater number of enemies than we often think he will. Because many Christians who are of the pessimistic ilk say, we just need to hold on a little bit longer. If we can just hold on a little bit longer until Christ comes back, that's what Christ says when he says, to the faithful I will give. Well, I, I find that kingdom millennial perspective to be woefully, it rejects the resurrection as the centerpiece of the church's power and mission. I don't believe, now there may be some places where you're just trying to hold out as long as you can, but if you look at the world around us, uh, there was a movie that was released recently, I haven't seen it, about... It's, it's, a, it's kind of a woke perspective on the last duel in European history. 
and it was between a man whose wife accused another man of raping her. And so he, it was a, a battle to the death. And it's in the 1300s, 14th century in France. And obviously what they were doing was battling over pride. That was the sort of woke thing. These are just two men battling over pride. It really wasn't about this woman's whatever, whatever. My point was, my point is, I, you know, in the trailer, 14th century France, that's a very different world than 21st century America and Europe for that matter. I mean, if you get a cavity in 14th century France, what do you do? Like chewing some licorice? I don't even know what you did. What you do is you look forward to your wooden tooth. Um, that's all you can do. If your kid gets scarlet fever, well, I hope her heart isn't damaged permanently or his heart damaged permanently. There are things that are expressions of the dominion of Christ that are not ecclesiastical. There are, there are expressions of the dominion of Christ that are dental, medicinal, just any of that stuff. I mean, our cars are a marvel at the expansion of and the use of the facilities that Christ has given us to take dominion. So when you speak of the word, Christ is taking dominion of the world through the church, and the word dominion that is coming through the church first then has this incredible spider-webbing effect into everything else in life. And it, it does not stop. It will not stop until Christ comes back. It, it's yeast. It's the, it's the little bit of yeast that works its way through the lump. It's the mustard seed that grows to the biggest tree in the garden. That, my point is um, the final form of the church is going to be the greatest thing the world has ever seen. Sociopolitically, ecclesiastically, there will be no, there will be no um, contenders to that throne, as it were. That doesn't mean I'm going to be in charge of it all. And I don't know when it'll happen. I hope I'm not in charge of it all. <laughs> but I do want to be part of it, whatever little part I can play. Is that helpful at all? I just, when you were saying it, it kind of, I got excited because I started thinking, you know, this is one of the problems with the church today is that we don't think, like you said originally to Derek's question, if there was a mistake to happen. Something happened and God changed his mind. Yeah. Now, here we're going down this track, now we're going down another track. Yeah. And I was saying, or what I was thinking, and when I heard you saying it, when you were talking about the word, I'm like, no, oh, no, no, no. This is exactly the way he planned it from the beginning. Yeah, he's the master builder. Yes. And the proof of that is Genesis 28, where Jacob sees the structure upon whom angels are ascending and descending, and that's Christ. You cannot tell me that God didn't have a plan if the blueprint of the plan is the Son. Period. And if it's the Son, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, if he's God, then you're right. What, what really began with Noah and his family or Adam and his wife is it's astounding where, where the church has come since then. Yes? So the parable of the talents seems extremely applicable to what we're discussing. And Jesus is condemning the Jews for behaving like many in the church now as the ones of the one talent. Yeah, impetulant, impatient children. And waits for the master to come back. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, and the condemnation is most of us have but one talent. And the fact he's not an unprofitable servant because he just has one. God gave him that one. That was grace. What he did is he resented the grace of God because he did not see what could happen with the one, what could be done with the one. Um, So, yeah, I think there's some of that. And I think it's hard to live in a wealthy country and be a faithful Christian. It's just hard. The enchantment, not just wealth. Wealth isn't just money. Wealth is reputation. Wealth is time. Wealth is a resource that God gives us to make more of that thing, whatever it might be. If you have a little bit of time, you can only do a little bit. But what does God say? To whom much is given, much is required. And frankly, if you grew up in this country, you probably have more than one. You have two or five. You have a whole lot. And I do think, I think this is the issue. We don't preach Deuteronomy, so we don't know what to do with Deuteronomic blessings when they fall on our lap. And we have enormous Deuteronomic blessings. But we don't like the law, so we don't know what to do with the blessings of God once we get them. They're like, a, you know, like it's like a dog that finds a squirrel. You don't know what to do with the squirrel. Have you ever seen my dog, who's a Doberman, will grab a chicken, but then it just she just stands there waiting for me to zap her. She doesn't know it's coming, but she just is kind of playing with the chicken. She doesn't have the heart to kill it, but she loves to trap it. Your dog would kill a chicken <laughs> and love it. <laughs> so your dog is. Yeah, your dog is a good example of what Christians ought to be. Going after it, going after the duck and knowing what to do with it when you get it. So a lot of, a lot of Christians came into wealth after the Second World War and they didn't know what to do with it. The baby boomer, yeah, anyway. Retrievists? That's a great, yeah. When God down yeah, there you go. Tongue wagging and everything. But that should be the disposition is tongue wagging, right? Because we're happy. You do it. I mean, how many, does Goose ever say, no, I don't want to go get that duck? Goose, Goose just lives to, I mean, how far would she go? Yeah. And I mean, I tell my kids, go take out the trash. so hard or I'll do that the kitchen is so dirty I don't want to clean the dishes I'm a man that's not my job I'll come up with all the excuses right except serve do the job do it again as as Chesterton encourages in fact I think for Christmas you know you can get those little silicone band bracelet things we're gonna if it weren't for my loathsome hatred of wearing jewelry I think I'll get some do it again bracelets for my children (laughs) What? <laughs> I'm going to get you a belt and I'm going to tattoo it to your forehead backwards so when you look in the mirror. <laughs> Anything, anybody else? Yeah. You You and me both. And I think when you mentioned it today, I couldn't help but think about you. There's some positive to thinking about if if the rapture were going to be that way, right? 
Like there's positive in the sense of am I ready? <laughs> Do I really believe? Question yourself. But and then also question the others. You know, I certainly thought McCarthy and I've had she's got some rough we've had some rough conversations about how many people she would like to be friends with her world is mostly not I mean half or more not Christian. Yeah. You know. And um, as much as we go to swim practice and she tries to witness and she tries to be kind and and those and yet she sees the poor character. Canaan and I've had these conversations. Um, if we walked into the if there was a rapture and we walked into the pool today, who's left? Mm-hmm. And so you question how fervently should I be witnessing to these people? Especially the the friends who I really care about and I'm nice to and I hang out with every day, but do I really share the gospel with them every day in a fervent way? Mm-hmm. Well, the rapture is not an illogical conclusion that can be drawn from texts. There are other texts that speak of um, Christ will come like a thief in the night. The, 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 the disagreement is what happens after that. So the rapture precedes the literal millennial reign of Christ on earth. The, what I would argue is the biblical second coming when the trumpet sounds is followed by um, judgment. And I think, as Richard Baxter says of his ministry, I preach as a dying man to dying men. As a dying man unto dying men. That if I get in that pulpit and my greatest burden is not for the souls of the people to whom I preach, I shouldn't be preaching. Because, and Edwards talks about this, the resolutions, if you get a chance to go through the resolutions, he says, one of his resolutions, I, would, I am resolved that I would never do a thing that I would be embarrassed or ashamed to have done if Christ were to return right after I did it. Well, <laughs> listen. The 21st century is full of young men who are doing things they should not be doing right before the coming of Christ. And that should scare you. And we are surrounded by people who, if Christ were to come back today, whom we know and we love and rightly love and are friends with, who we would never see again. And I do think that that is a, that is a without the rapture stuff, but the, the it is a holy fear to fear eternal damnation, even for our worst enemies. Because to sit under the wrath of God, every man deserves it. But boy, to wish that on someone, this is why you never say damn you or GD. Because boy, that is a serious... And here's the thing, Christ has given it to the church to judge men. When a Christian says GD, it means something else than when an unbeliever, because he doesn't have any standing before God whatsoever. So, I, I do think that, yeah, your burden for the souls of people can remain and not have a rapture theology, but have a Christ is coming again. And we don't know. We don't know. Or they could be in a, their lives could be taken away from them in any moment. Yeah. Thank you so much for what you brought out in text today. I guess one of the foundational things is how do we really think of Christ today? How do most people think of Christ today? Um, you know, and, and we went through the, the text.
text today is, you know, exalted as judge and ruler. And, I mean, it was really hitting deep, hmm. right? Who he is today, um, what his coming will be. Uh, and I think that's often not thought about, discussed. Um, it takes a back seat. Well, I think we we dwell in the poles of either Jesus is an effeminate, long-haired hippie, or he's a gun-toting, blue-blooded patriot. And we make him in our image, right? Either our image of what true masculinity is, those we are even... Even people that are trying to rescue Christ from this sort of effeminate liberal side don't, they go too far the other way. But what we see here is a perfect picture of strength expressed in mercy. So you go out with the confidence that Christ is king of heaven and earth with the extension of the mercy of Christ. Because the mercy of Christ is only open for us for a period of time. And at some point, Christ will stop offering mercy and there will only be the judgment. And that, by that time, the, lines, the line was drawn and you're either on the right side of Christ or not. And our hope is that we can go forth not nice, not in niceness, which is what people often say, you need to be nice. I'm like, I have no interest in being nice. I'll be kind and gentle and humble because those are fruits of the Spirit. Humble isn't in there, but humility is certainly exhibited by Christ. But I'm going to come with the full weight of the truth of Scripture. Because I still need to carry the sword. Or I need to go out with the sword. Um, but yeah, every culture makes Christ in his own image. To some degree. Yeah. So, when uh, you was talking about verse 20. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And later they're actually, in chapters 2 and 3, it's saying to the angel of the, of the church in Ephesus, write. That's not an angel writing. That's a pastor. The words of him who holds the seven stars. So these seven churches don't have angels preaching to them. They have men. So angel is just, what is it? It's not euangelion. That's gospel. What's angel? I can't remember. It just means messenger. The Greek can be messenger or a celestial, otherworldly being. A created, but not a human being. No, those letters would have been carried by a servant of the church in circuit. They were physically carried from church to church. They were not... Is it Forrest Gump? Is there a scene like in a movie where like something's floating? You know, it's not like it's floating in the air. Um, it's, these, are, these are literal letters. Yeah, but it doesn't mean there's not other people on Patmos or that someone can't come to Patmos. He can't leave Patmos. That's what exile is. Yeah. 
It can. It can. Um, what is the authorized? Does anybody have an authorized version? I have an ESV in my... Same. Um, so that word, and, and when we see angel, we don't always need to see a supernatural being. That word is interchangeable throughout the Old and New Testament. And even it says angel sometimes, and it's actually speaking of Christ in the Old Testament. It's just a, a message deliverer. So I'm your little angel. <laughs> At one point, my grandmother would decorate for Christmas. It was great when we were little kids, and then by the time we were teenagers, no one wanted to go to my grandmother's to decorate for Christmas. She would put out like 70-something angels around the house. And to Reformed Presbyterians, you know, it's like, if I touch this, am I going to get burned? <laughs> this is a serious Second Commandment violation we got going on here. So it, we never said anything, because you know how sons and their mothers are. <laughs> The one person you can never rebuke is your own mother. Uh, we never had that conversation. But I think a lot of people just from a sort of ingrained natural hermeneutic, when they see angel, they think a spiritual being, not a flesh and blood minister of the gospel. So that's not a strange translation. In fact, most commentators agree that this is the angels. And the context shows that these are the men who are given the words to preach to their, to their congregations. And so they wouldn't just read these letters. They would actually preach these letters, if that makes sense. they do what I'm doing. So. so there are a lot of instances in the book of Revelation where you get a sign, you don't know what it means, and then almost right away you get the translation, like the seven um, hills of Rome. I think I talked about that last week in terms of dating. You may go, ooh, I don't know what that is. And then a couple pages over, you actually get some clarification. There's actually a lot of that in the book of Revelation. But if there is anything we've learned <laughs> from Fauci, it's that if you withhold information from the public, you get to tell them what things mean. Revelation is not meant to withhold. It's meant to reveal and I have zero desire to say, you guys need to come to me in order to know what to believe. Um, I'm just using a, I'm just using a uh, current example. Um, men love to have power and then to slowly dispense the benefits that come by holding that power. If that makes sense. I don't want that to happen. Anything else? I, I'm updating. Yes. My understanding, and this could be completely flawed, is that the early church struggled as much as we do to unravel what the revelation was about. Is that? Yeah, times. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, for 2,000 years we've struggled with it, right? Maybe we'll have. They thought that Jesus was coming back right now. Yeah, many did. I think Paul expresses hope in that reality. And we're told, Kelvin and I were talking about this, we're told to pray and labor for the hastening of the arrival of Christ. But we also need to understand 2,000 years is not a very long time. I mean, Henry, how old are you? 12? <laughs> right now you're acting four. No. Time is, a, is, a, is, is very relative. 
I mean, even if you go up in a taller building, time slows down. It's kind of interesting. The less gravity you have. Actually, this is actually an incredible. This is another topic. I don't talk about quantum mechanics. But um, in fact, I do want to share when I looked up the King James, all I got was pictures of King James. That is LeBron James. I'm a little disappointed. I'm a little disappointed that it's a picture of LeBron James. And he's crying, which is, that's helpful. Um, and the title is, He's King of Hypocrisy when it comes to China. Well, that's interesting. That makes me feel a little bit better. Um, I think, I do think that Christ could come at any point. Having the millennial view that I have makes me hopeful that there is work to be done and that though for the Christian our great hope is to see Christ, Christ is already coming. He's coming through the ministry and the work of the church and that he has come more now than he had 2,000 years ago. And I say coming, I mean the, 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 the power and the effect of his resurrection is felt more as the centuries tick on. The church is growing. Um, we see his power and presence manifested. Now you may say, well, if this case doesn't go the way we want that's in the Supreme Court right now, that must mean something. I'm like, yeah, it does mean something. It means get to work. Work harder. And actually what it means is this. God is building up for the ungodly a day of judgment. And you know who survives that day? The church. And the wicked will be wiped off and the, the, the righteous will stand. And that's sometimes how God creates a more holy church is through judgment. Not just all blessing all the time. Right? The Tao does not have any indication in the kingdom. The Tao does not trace the coming of the kingdom, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's good. And that is fruitless. Jesus has no ability to give us peace if he doesn't have the sword. That he's not already victorious because otherwise it's a false belief. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm comforted in your presence, but you're weak. You can do nothing for me. But rather, you're comforted in your presence because you were strong and do everything. And then immediately, I will do this thing. And this yeah. is always the picture we see. Isaiah chapter 6, that's, 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 you know, Moses at the burning bushes. I'm terrified. I've seen the Lord. He's comforting me. And he's giving me a task to do, giving me something yeah. to go out and do. And that wraps up. That should be at the heart of whatever the eschatology is that we believe, too. And so often we use that, our eschatology, or we argue about our eschatologies to, to say, well, because they believe it this way, they're not busy about doing this work because of this work. This is salvation. I mean, you're saved. Yeah. You yeah. Well said. Did you have? I did. I was sort of the same concept. You know, my favorite New Testament character is the centurion, and he probably had very little in way of developing a, a end times mindset or whatever it was. But you know, he went through the entire list. He was responsible for it and basically had my, he 
I know what you're doing. I know what you're going to do, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> and uh, if you just say it, then they don't have to. That's the mindset of a post-millennial. Yeah, we don't know what happened to him, but we do know that his character was one of, yes, sir, I'll do it. Yep, and then Christ says what? No greater faith have I not seen in all of Israel than this. I think we ought to go from the church every Lord's Day morning and evening and say, all right, tell me what to do. Now that actually is detestable amongst many in the church. They don't want their pastor to tell them what they want to do. They think that's legalism. I got no time for that. Because I need to be told what to do. Now I need to be told what to believe. Um, but I need to be commissioned regularly to do the right thing. Um, and actually what happens is you, you will get no greater joy in Christ than to do what he tells you to do. The path to true contentment and joy is to follow Christ, to lay down your life, and take up your cross and follow him. And I think what chapter 1 in Revelation does is says this is the backdrop for all Christian discipleship. This is what it looks like in heaven. And I think that's, that's why, and actually was writing some notes in the night in, in corporate prayer, and I was writing down the implications, and I, I actually forgot to put that into my sermon, but maybe I'll write it in the email this week. When you contemplate what John sees, it will strengthen your faith and make you a more disciplined Christian because of what, who Christ is and what he does. So those things are not mutually exclusive, telling people what to do and also telling what people what to believe or what Christ has done for you. So if you have any more questions, um, you can always email me. I am working on, as I'm moving through Revelation, defining the terms, a glossary of sorts. Uh, so not just some of those interpretive frameworks, but I've already put in things like this, who are the seven stars, who are the seven lamp, what are the seven lampstands, and there's one more. And as we move through, and we will, two and three are pretty basic. They're pretty easy. They're just very simple letters. And then we get to some more crazy stuff, but good stuff. Yes, Henry. Last. <laughs> that sounds like family worship. <laughs> Where's the clock? It's, it's being replaced. That's why I'm just not even paying attention to the time right now. What's that? Yeah. All right, can I close this in prayer? Let's do it. Lord, we are grateful for the day to be with your people to be in your presence as a people. And Lord, whatever sort of theological commitments we have when we come to this book, we ask for two things, that you would um, deal with any of those commitments. If they are false, that you would implant within our minds truth. And that, above all else, we would behold you as you are, and that we would see this is the reason for our salvation, for the progress and thriving of the church, and that great things are in store for your people, even if it means suffering. The end of all of this is glory. And so, Lord, give us a hope and a confidence that in the end we will inherit a kingdom that will outshine the sun. Oh Lord, we pray for those who are lost. And if you were to return today, 
Or if they were to die, Lord, they would be lost for eternity. Grant to them sight, true spiritual sight that comes only by your Holy Spirit, that you would use means like McCarthy, like us, Lord, to build and grow your kingdom in all things. Lord, for your glory, we pray this. Amen.